If you would turn with me now to Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, as we look at those two verses for a second time, and as we conclude uh, this paragraph, the, the version I'm looking at here, this particular New King James has it as a second paragraph, 12 through 17 is one paragraph, 18 through 19 is one paragraph. I prefer to think of uh, 12 through 19 as one paragraph. Uh, and as we find it beginning with the words, therefore, he is concluding uh, the thought there. And then moreover, verse 20, which God willing, we'll look at next time. He uh, he adds an additional thought. But here he concludes the thought which he began in verse 12. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for these mighty words which the Apostle uttered for our benefit and under the inspiration of your Spirit. And we ask you now, O God, that through the preaching that you might shed light to your word and that you might bring it with power into the lives and the hearts of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've been saying, just as uh, I read these verses, we've, we've arrived at the conclusion of this mighty and so central passage in the book of Romans. Uh, in fact, when I think of uh, the verse, the, the one verse that so captures the idea of what it means to be justified, I think of verse 19. By the obedience of the one, the many will be justified. And, and, and as I said, I think in the very first sermon on the subject, in chapter, well, when I did an overview, it used to be the case that Christians, and you read, you read older books, uh, Puritans and the men who came uh, in, their, in their wake, they would glory, especially in that verse, or in these two verses, as containing the essence of what it meant to be justified. I a sinner am declared righteous only for the obedient righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me and received by faith alone. Well, that's what we've been considering. And here Paul, in this mighty and this succinct way, summarizes the subject for us and the teaching. And what I propose to do this morning is, uh, having looked at these two verses in a more general way last time, now to look at more narrowly the subject which has been the contrast throughout, but, but concluding now looking at the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ. That has been throughout the crucial point of comparison, a, a, a point which is crucial to our grasp of the fall of man. And on the other side of the fall of man, redemption and justification and life, which is found in Jesus Christ. For it was, as Paul teaches us here, summarizing the teaching of the whole Bible. And you can go back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and see this. It was Adam's sin, his single sin, that led to condemnation, sin, and death for all. But on the other side, in the realm of grace and redemption, it is by Christ's obedience that justification, righteousness, and life come to the many. The record of which we have in the four Gospels, the life and the death of Jesus Christ, summarized in the idea or the word obedience. And why is that? Why is it the case, as Paul teaches here, that sin, death and condemnation came to all through Adam's single transgression? 
And on the other side, if we were to be saved as Adam's sons, it must be through the obedience, the righteous obedience of another. If we were to be justified and brought into the realm of life, it must come in this way. Why? Well, it is because, as Meredith Klein provocatively said, but he was absolutely right when he said it, heaven must be earned. Heaven must be earned. That is, you find in the garden the works principle, do this and live. If man would live, it must come, uh, life understood in the ultimate sense, it must come by his obedience. And what we find in the garden, and we'll explore this this, this morning, that Adam would be awarded with heavenly life by his obedience. Likewise, we find the same principle in the life of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We find the works principle. Life as a reward for obedience. Heaven must be earned. The way that he, Jesus Christ, achieves heavenly life and justification for his people is by his obedience. Just as Adam forfeited these things, life And brought in condemnation by his disobedience. Not only for himself, but for us. And that is the teaching of these two verses, just as as it has been the teaching of verses 12 through 19. And, indeed, of the whole of the Bible. Now, another word that captures this idea is righteousness. Righteousness understood as conformity to a standard. The idea, I mean, of the works principle present in the garden and in the life of Christ. And the standard that is uh, conformed to is obviously the law of God. And uh, this word righteousness is perhaps more important than we realize. In fact, I I would say, and I think very uh, much in agreement with the Apostle Paul, there is no single word that so captures the essence of the gospel as this word righteousness, the gospel of free grace. For Paul has already told us, we read this earlier on, and we read it again, uh, uh, chapter 1, but then again in chapter 3. That this single word captures the central concern of the gospel of free grace. For the saving power that is at work in the gospel, verse 16 of chapter 1, is revealed or demonstrated solely in the righteousness of God. It is powerful to save through the righteousness of God to the one who has faith. And the righteousness of God that is revealed is the I said this earlier. It is the righteous, uh, the righteousness that is operative in our justification. Not human righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And which is found exclusively Not in the sinner, but in the work and in the life of Jesus Christ, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God is revealed in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is found in his obedience, Romans chapter 5 verse 19. So the righteousness of God, which is operative in our salvation and justification, it is the righteousness not of man, not of Adam, but of Jesus Christ, which he rendered unto God in his life and death in order that he might justify the many. Theologically, the value of his obedience, his obedient righteousness becomes clear when we see 
that both Adam and Christ were under a covenant of works. They were not under a covenant of grace like we are, but they were under a covenant of works. Both were called upon as federal heads of humanity to secure by their obedience a righteousness that God would reward with life. And so this, the, the, the operative principle in that covenant was the works principle. Do this and live. And the man who did it, the man who obeyed the, 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 the law of God, would be rewarded with life. Heaven must be earned. There's that thought again. But before we explore uh, the covenant of works as it, uh, as, as it was uh, in place over Adam and, and later over Christ, we might also be thinking here of the covenant of grace. How it is we read that God justifies us freely by his grace. I read that earlier in chapter 3. So what about that? Isn't justification, as Paul tells us very clearly, a matter of grace and not a matter of works? Well, yes and no. Let me try to sum up the matter here in answering the question by using two categories uh, from Buchanan his book on justification. He says at the beginning of his book that there are two methods of justification. And justification, you remember, simply means uh, that one is declared to be righteous. The man, is ju- the man who is justified is declared by God to be righteous. And that can happen, Buchanan says, in one of two ways. First, it might happen by one's adherence to the law. The justification, he says, Of the righteous. That's the first way. A man having performed God's law under certain conditions, those of a covenant, would achieve a true righteousness, a righteousness that God would recognize and reward. And so God in his justice would declare that person to be righteous. In other words, he would justify him. How? By his works. If Adam had obeyed, he would have been justified. Christ, when he was when he obeyed, he was justified in his resurrection. He was declared to be righteous. And so the first method is that of justification by works. Yes, there really is such a thing. But that thing that I'm describing here, the justification of the righteous was possible only for two people who ever lived, two historic persons who entered this world with no personal or inherited sin. And those two persons were Adam and Jesus Christ. The subject of these verses. But once sin entered the world, the whole of humanity was placed in a category of sinners. And there was no longer any way to be justified in this way as righteous persons. When Paul speaks of the impossibility of justification by works, he is not speaking of it uh, in the total summation of events. It was possible in the case of two people, but it is impossible, he is saying, in the case where sin reigns where sin prevails there is no way for a sinner to be to be declared righteous personally no way for him to be righteous by himself the law makes no provision for the justification of sinners it either pronounces righteousness upon one who actually is or else it condemns all who fall short of its perfect standard and that's what it's doing even now There is no method or mechanism by which the law might justify sinners. And thus all must either be lost or else there must be another way found in the wisdom of God to justify man as sinners. 
What then does God propose to do? Well, in his marvelous wisdom, he actually proposes to do the impossible, so to speak. He proposes to justify sinners, or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4, to justify the ungodly. That which was impossible from the standpoint of the law, but which is possible from the standpoint of grace and free grace. And so, according to Buchanan, the second method of justification, one which we have been considering through the whole book of Romans, is the justification of sinners. The justification of men and women like you and me. And this is the way set forth in the gospel. The second way that God once more justifies sinners freely by his grace. But let us see, and this is the crucial point that stands out with such perfect clarity in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. That the two ways of justification are not at odds. The justification of the righteous and the justification of sinners. Nor, and here is the, the crucial point to underline, nor would the second way be possible apart from the first. Justification of sinners would not be possible apart from the justification of the righteous. For God does not justify sinners as sinners. Indeed, he plainly declares in his revealed will that he cannot and he will not in his justice justify the wicked. How then does he propose to justify the ungodly? By means of a mediator. One who was like Adam placed under a covenant of works. And who might by his obedience secure righteousness and justification and life for many souls. But before we consider the work of this mediator, we might consider the one after whom his work was patterned. The one who was a type of him who was to come. Adam. Considering him in the relation that he bore to humanity as standing under a covenant of works. This is the first side of the comparison. The disobedience of the one. First, we see that he was placed in the garden in a state of innocence. And you notice I do not say that he was placed in a state of righteous uh, righteousness because that is something positive. Righteousness is something that you achieve by your obedience to God's law. But innocence merely speaks of the absence of sin. Adam in the garden was free of personal sin. He lived in an unfallen world. He thus might be tempted to sin, and he was, but he possessed in himself no inclination to sin. Uh, Looking just at this first point with respect to Adam, we could say uh, of him how easily he might have obeyed God and thus been rewarded with life under these conditions. Adam was set up not to fail, but to succeed. He was given every advantage one could possibly imagine. But second, we see in this state of innocence that God attached a positive precept, a law which was given to Adam as a test of his obedience. Uh, God there in the garden requiring obedience of Adam in a specific way. And that precept, that positive precept was uh, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as you know from Genesis chapter 2. This is what we call the probation. Adam, under the covenant of works in the garden, was placed under a probation. Whereby his obedience to God was being tested, not uh, perpetually, not forever, but just for a period of time, a probation. Essential to the idea of probation 
or testing is temptation. And thus the serpent was granted to enter uh, into the garden and to test and to try Adam's fidelity to God on the single point. Would he obey God in his single command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And that's where the crisis of, of obedience emerges. That's the point that the devil highlights. Attached to this was the penalty of death. Death understood, uh, first of all, as exile from the presence of God, which is what we see immediately happens upon Adam's sin, uh, since the presence of God is life and life forevermore, but also as the dissolution of his physical existence, physical death. And so God says to him in giving the positive precept, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, the promise of death. But also let us see the promise of life upon obedience symbolized in the tree of life. Life understood not merely as a continued existence in the garden, for that would place him in a position of perpetual probation, ever liable to falling and ever capable of losing the bliss that he found there, but rather life symbolized as a confirmed state of blessedness, that of being, as Vol says, immune to death because immune to sin. Should Adam, in other words, have achieved the righteousness that God required in the probationary test, if he had obeyed, God would have justified Adam. He would have declared him as his righteous son, and he would have rewarded him with a life that he could not lose, just as we hope to enjoy one day in heaven, out of the reach of temptation, out of the reach of any possibility of sinning, a confirmed state of blessedness. That is what heaven is. To stand in the presence of God without any threat ever of falling from that state. And the way God would have communicated this life to Adam and confirmed him in this state of blessedness was by granting him to eat of the tree of life. Communicating him uh, to him through that sacramental means a life that he could not lose. Making him immune from sin and immune from death. And thus confirmed his place forevermore in the presence of God. Adam would have brought heaven on earth. But lastly, in terms of the covenant under which Adam stood, we see that Adam in this represented not only himself, but all of mankind and all of the world. The fate of the world hinged on his obedience under the probationary test. The whole of humanity, we've already seen this, was represented by Adam in his test. So that when he, uh, his test I mean, so that when he sinned, we sinned along with him. When he fell, we fell along with him. But if he had succeeded, and if he had achieved righteousness before God, something positive, he would not only have been justified himself, but we along with him. He would, have been, he would have brought justification and life to all his heirs and to all the world. He would have established a world of heavenly paradise, immune from sin and death. Heaven would have begun right there and then. He would have earned it. Not as his right, for man uh, may claim nothing from God as his due, not even Adam. But as that which God promised to give him under the terms of the covenant of works. Death upon disobedience, life upon obedience. But that is not what happened. And so we see, as Paul tells us, what happened as a result of Adam's sin, namely sin, death, and condemnation. And let me briefly examine what that sin consisted of, looking first 
as we did at the covenant of works and now the breach of the covenant of works. The sin of Adam seen as a transgression of the covenant of works. The one sin of the one man that Paul keeps referring to and why it had such enormous consequences for all of humanity making it necessary that Christ should come. First, his sin consisted of his succumbing to the temptation in the garden. Rather than crushing the head of the serpent in his first entrance into the garden and thus preserving the integrity and the holiness of that sanctuary and his and his wife's place in it, he allowed himself and his wife to be deceived by the serpent. And out of this uh, first sin arose a a distrust of God and his goodness to man. He lived in a place of bounty, the garden, and yet he imagined at Satan's suggestion that God was withholding from man some untold blessing represented in the tree he was forbidden to eat of. Next, by his sin, he now felt something he had not felt before, namely that of fear and shame in the presence of God. Not only that, but as God met with man in his shame, God now pronounced the sentence of the curse and death upon man, which we read of in Genesis chapter 3. There is the judicial verdict of God being rendered upon man or pronounced. God now regarding Adam and all his heirs as sinners, standing under the condemnation of God, against whom his wrath is being revealed. Those whom God regards and deals with As sinners. And thus from that moment on. Beginning to experience the bitter fruit of sin. Namely death. And is that not what Paul has been expounding upon. Throughout these verses. And so we see as a result of this. That Adam was cast out of the garden. The presence of uh, God. and, And following that he was forbidden. Access to the tree of life. And there he lost for himself and all of us. Access to the fruit of which we might eat and live forever in the presence of God. The question we're left with uh, when we read that at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis is how might we ever get back to that tree? Now that the flaming swords surrounded, barring entrance. And uh, just to get ahead of myself a little bit here, we might rejoice to read Jesus saying, I think twice in Revelation, that, uh, that he has the power and that he will grant to the faithful a right To eat of the tree of life. And so just to complete the imagery there. Adam was forbidden. But we along with him. Until another came along and granted us access to the tree once more. But to sum up the matter. Adam's covenant and Adam's sin. We see that his one sin resulted in the fall of all. And we are again struck by the tragedy of what might have been. If he had obeyed. He would have been justified. And all of the blessings that were promised to him, namely life forevermore in the presence of God, would have come not only to him and his wife, but to all of his heirs. But he did not obey. And the effects of that one sin is something we are now well aware of. So that now is a second major point. If now there was to be any justification at all in the sight of God. It must come in the second way, not the justification of the righteous, but the justification of sinners. If ever man now was to be justified, he must be justified as one who is ungodly. 
He must be justified freely by God's grace. But here's the glory of it all in the wisdom of God and in the mind of God. The way God proposes to do this, namely justifying sinners, is not by setting aside the covenant of works made with Adam, whereby justification comes through personal righteousness, but by renewing it in someone else. Renewing the terms of the covenant of works, the promise, the penalty, uh, the, the conditions, and so forth. In another man, someone who, like Adam, had no personal sin, Someone who was capable of achieving a righteousness that was worthy of the name, uh, namely the righteousness of God. For that is what is revealed in the gospel, not the righteousness of man, but the righteousness of God, whereby he justifies sinners. Only, let us add something else, now that sin had entered, one who was also able to contend with the effects of sin. One who could not only do what Adam didn't do, namely obey the law of God, but one who could also make up for his failure. And such a person was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, the very focal point of the gospel, the one in whom the righteousness of God is revealed. And so when we consider on the other side of the contrast, the obedience of, this, of, of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we must see him as likewise placed under a covenant of works. That is the way to understand what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5. And especially verses 9, uh, 18 and 19. The parallel and the symmetry between Adam and Christ. The way they stood in the same place. Under the same covenant. Neither are considered solely as individuals. But as federal persons. As representatives of humanity. Whose obedience or disobedience had immense consequences for many, only uh, when we look at the comparison and the symmetry and the parallel between Christ and Adam, we are again struck by the contrast, by the much more of it all in the case of Christ. That's one of Paul's favorite expressions. Uh, we're about to see it again in verses 20 and 21. The much more. How much more did Christ do for us? How much more do we gain in Christ than we ever lost in Adam? We see it again in these verses. As for instance, for him, that is for Christ, it was not in a state of innocence. It was not in an unfallen world that Christ was placed under a covenant of works, but in a fallen world, in a state of sin, where sin prevailed. And thus he must contend with that as well, unlike Adam. And this brought an extremity to his situation that was not found in Adam's. He must suffer from the moment he entered this world. Uh, I, I, I was I was rereading uh, Bonar's. Uh, I think this is Horace Bonar, not Andrew. Andrew's the one who wrote Leviticus, but Horatius Bonar, uh, the everlasting righteousness. is a famous line. I'm going to. Uh, I think yes. I'm going to read another line uh, in a moment. But he says, "From the cradle to the cross, all of his life was one of suffering for sin." You don't see that in Adam when he was under the covenant of works, but you see it in the much more of Christ as he stood under a covenant of works. Sufferings of deprivation, sufferings of pain in his physical body, sufferings by the sins of others. None of which was present in the garden when Adam was tempted to sin. But all of which was present in all of Christ's life. 
as he was ever tempted to give up his task as the mediator and the surety of the elect. And so it became necessary as he stood under the covenant of works to obey the law to a greater extent than Adam. Not only must he obey the positive precepts of the law, but he must now endure the penalty of the law as well. The very penalty promised to Adam. On the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Death is the wages of sin. But should he do this? Should he obey the law in its entirety, both in its positive moral precepts and in its penalty, then what was promised to the second Adam was justification and life. By his obedience, this second Adam would be justified. That is, he would be declared righteous. And as a result of his justification, he was promised life represented in the resurrection, having come under the power of death. And all of this he would secure and achieve as our mediator and surety, which means in our place he stood. But seeing then these as the terms of the covenant under which he was placed in his humanity, let us consider in contrast to Adam the obedience of Jesus Christ. Just as we looked at Adam's covenant and Adam's disobedience, so now Christ's covenant of works and now Christ's obedience. What Paul says at the end, so also by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, the many will be Justified. The first thing to notice about his obedience is that there was for Christ an element of coming under the law. He stood over it as the lawgiver, but now he comes under it as the mediator in his humanity. It's something that was necessary for him uh, to redeem humanity. That in coming into this world, being born of a woman, as Paul says in Galatians 4, he was born under the law. He, again, as the lawgiver, must place himself under that law which Adam broke, obligating himself to fulfill everything it required of us in its positive and in in its penal aspects. He must not only obey, but he must suffer. Now think of the Gospels as I'm saying this. He must not only do, but he must die. And you know, it used to be common to speak of the doing and the dying of Jesus. We we, we cut that in half. We speak only of the dying of Christ. Let us begin again in light of this teaching to speak of the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. As he comes under the law. For this is what the law required of the second Adam. Not just that he do, but that he die. But we also see how he endured, like Adam, a period of testing in the wilderness. Not in the garden, but in the wilderness. Not in the place of plenty, but in the place of deprivation. Not only there, but also, also in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. There in a state of deprivation, he was tempted to give up his task and his office. He was tempted to resent God forever asking it of him. And in both places, he was intentionally weakened. Placed in a state of disadvantage. To make his obedience, if there was to be any, to spring solely from a principle of love to God. Without any outward helps to make this more likely. If God would be loved, and here this principle, it's true of us all, but it's embodied perfectly in the obedience of Jesus Christ. If God would be loved, he must be loved and obeyed solely 
and fully for his own sake and for nothing else. Not merely for the comfort he gives. No one ever obeyed like Jesus. Yes, and all this, though he had, uh, in all this I mean, though he had no sin, he ever, all his life, bore the sins of many upon himself. He never sinned, but he ever bore the sins of the elect upon his person. A, a burden that weighed him down all his life and eventually killed him on the cross as he bore not only sin, him, sin itself in his person, but the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God for sin. Nevertheless, what we find in the life of Jesus Christ, in the doing and the dying of, of our Adam, is that he was obedient to the very end. Lo, he came to do the will of God, and so he did, to the very end. He was obedient, Paul says, and so we see, to the point of death, even death on a cross. His obedience to the Father, under the covenant of works, went even to that extreme. It went as far, uh, I, I say with reverence, as the law could ever ask of anyone. The law could ask no more, even of our Adam. It could require no more. And with that, his obedience rendered unto God, even to that point, even to that extreme. The highest form of obedience had been reached. The law had been obeyed, even in the state where sin prevailed. Jesus, our Adam, obeyed every command. He suffered every penalty. Righteousness was the result. The very righteousness of God that Paul so loves to speak of. The righteousness that is which God accepts. The righteousness which God delights in. The righteousness which God is pleased to reward with life everlasting. And the righteousness by which, let us especially see, God is pleased to justify the many. The righteousness in which his power to save becomes apparent. See how much uh, God delights in the obedient righteousness of his son. But what is perhaps most marvelous of all to see is just that he did it. That Jesus did it at all. For unlike Adam, there was no need that he should do any of it. And yet that he did was an act of immeasurable condescension on his part. For he suffered for transgressions he did not commit. And he as the lawgiver placed himself under that law. And bound himself to obey its every command. All while seeking God's favor. Which he already enjoyed as the very son of God. Ever living in the bosom of the father. Wonder of wonders. That he of all people should endure and seek so much. For those who fell in Adam. Everything he did. He did for us. He was delivered over on the cross for our transgressions. And he was raised on the third day for our justification. He placed himself voluntarily under a covenant of works. In order that by his obedience, justification and life might become ours as a free gift. The bestowal of something which is unearned. All that we might adore the free grace by which we are saved. And that in us, the grace of God would redound to all eternity. As Matthew Henry speaks, we now becoming monuments of grace by which God displays the excellence of his grace 
to all the world forevermore. And know that we, like Paul, might adore that grace by which we are saved. And especially the one in whom it appears, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one in whom we behold the righteousness of God. And the righteous power of God to save even sinners such as ourselves. And here I come uh, to the Bonar quote. Do we know what it means to speak of his righteousness? This is what Bonar says. This righteousness of God was no common righteousness. It was the righteousness of him who was both God and man. And therefore it was not only the righteousness of God, but in addition to this, it was the righteousness of man. Never had the life been seen or heard of in heaven or earth before. It was the twofold perfection of creatorhood and creatorship in one resplendent center, one glorious person. The righteousness of God, which is revealed in the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. And now to think that God should regard me as standing in that righteousness, clothed in it, protected by it, shielded from God's wrath, and now ever standing in his favor because of it. His righteousness now all mine, just as surely as my sin was all his on the cross. Let me give you a Hugh Martin quote. Speaking of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He has made all our sin as truly as he has none of his own. We are made all his righteousness as truly as we have none, uh, none of ours. For it is we wholly and completely that are his. He wholly and completely that is our righteousness. And now as I sum up the matter. To think of myself now as standing before God in Christ. As standing in that righteousness. Should I, a sinner, be found in Christ before God by faith? And should God now justify me by that righteousness? Then do you suppose that God would ever overturn his verdict? This is what Paul will soon say in Romans chapter 8. Let me read those uh, verses. You remember what he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But he goes on to say, what then shall we say to these things? God is for us, who who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely also give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession For us and on and on he goes. Do you realize that that is the effect of it all? I've been saying it. Let me uh, over and over. Let me say it one last time, although I suppose I'll continue to say it as we go on, especially to chapter eight. The effect of it all is this mighty assurance that justification gives to the believer to see my justification before God as something that is settled already. Not as something indefinite, something which is suspended upon my own life in obedience as though I, like Adam, were placed under a covenant of works. No, that isn't it. Justification, my justification as a believer, is something that is already achieved. It's something that Christ has already accomplished for me. It is a verdict which God has already rendered concerning Christ and all who are his. The verdict of righteous 
before God, the righteousness of God. That is what believers are now standing in because they stand in Christ. And if that is so, do you think for a moment that God would ever go back on this? Do you think he will ever regard you in any other way than as one who is now righteous in his sight? For he has accepted you in his son. And that is something that he could never go back on, nor would he want to. Get a hold of the doctrine, beloved. Get it clear in your mind what it means to be justified freely by his grace in his son. Your standing and your place before God is one that is absolutely secure if you are in Christ. And you will see that if God has justified you, nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever now make God regard you as one who is unrighteous. Nor can anything, as Paul goes on to say, now separate you from the love of God. He now regards you as righteous and he will never change his mind. He will never go back on his word. That is the gospel of justification. And let us see how surely our standing is before God if we are in Christ. And know that we might grasp all of it uh, not only as a point to be understood, but as, as a doctrine to be grasped by way of personal application and personal appropriation. And so, along with Paul, glory in it always so that we with him would enjoy the peace and the joy and assurance in believing that he describes in Romans chapter 5. Amen. And let us now come to the table. As a reminder to myself, but also to others, we will have the deacon's offering immediately following this. Let me just read Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 and following. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, well, let me just state here uh, in connection with the sermon that the whole effect of the Lord's Supper is the same uh, of Romans chapter five, and that is that we might see. Uh, how solid is the rock upon which we stand uh, for we look for justification and forgiveness and life, not in ourselves, not in our own acts of penance or charity, not in our obedience or even in our prayers. But we look for these things solely in Jesus Christ, whose uh, whose life, whose body, whose blood was offered for our sakes. And we are meant uh, always to look solely for salvation in him and having found it to delight in it. Uh, that that that's why I, I always read the last verse there when they had eaten, they sung a hymn. <laughs> they were worshiping God. Well, 11 of them were at least. So there was also a betrayer in their midst. And so this is an act of worship. This is an act of communion and spiritual fellowship with Jesus Christ and all the believers. Uh, a time when we can express in distinction from the world, the foundation of our hope and our joy. And that is Jesus Christ. And, and looking to find him in the very thing uh, 
the very place that he has promised to be found in the preaching, in the sacraments, and in one another. And if that is the hope which is found in your heart, and if you find that you cannot wait to take the Lord's Supper, then I tell you to come, for there you will meet with Jesus Christ, your Lord. Uh, But if anything else should be found in your heart, anything short of that, then I would urge you to examine yourself a little more closely before you come. Uh, But with those words of invitation and warning, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. Together uh, with the preaching, we we always glory in the preaching, however weak it is. It is the great thing uh, that you have set up to set forth the glories of your son, but connected with it. And we, we, we rejoice to do it in this way. Connected with it is is the Lord's Supper as a, as a time of reflection and immediately to put the thoughts of the sermon to the test in our own hearts and as a great opportunity right away to improve the sermon. Well, help us to do that, Lord, and go with us from this place, having nourished us spiritually uh, with a desire to continue to do so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.